July 3rd, 2016, we began our study in the Gospel of Luke. So we've been there almost two years now. I would say we have maybe another six months to go, at least another six months to go. I hate to put a time frame on it, but that's where we're at. The reason I bring that up isn't to say, oh, wow, we've been in this book for two years. It is to point out the fact that every week for the past nearly two years, except for maybe during Christmas and a few special messages, at the top of your sermon notes, it says, Church on Randall plays sermon notes in the date. And the second line says, to seek and to save the lost, a study in the gospel or a study in Luke. So for two years, hopefully you've been reading that we've entitled this, this, the, this sermon series, to seek and to save the lost. And I bring that up because today we are going to see where that, those words come from. We are going to see where Jesus says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And that will be... So today comes to... That, that title will now make sense to you, but I believe that um, it is the central message if we were to summarize um, the Gospel of Luke into a single statement I would put that forth as its single statement, to seek and to save the lost. And so that's where we're going to go today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And I just want to give you uh, some some overview, perhaps, just a brief overview of, uh, of, of our topic today. And I find it interesting because today we're going to talk about the salvation of a man by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. Many of you may be familiar with the story. If you're not, you will be in just a few minutes. Zacchaeus was, we might call him, an oppressor. He took advantage of people. He stole from people. He, he was the guy who, uh, you know, widows... Those who were poor, he, uh, he took from them. He was an oppressor. And it stands in contrast to what we studied two weeks ago, and that was the blind man who was the oppressed. And so Jesus is ta- ta- talking to us or sharing with us that both oppressor and oppressed are people, are candidates for salvation. There is nobody outside of the scope of God's salvation. We need to keep that clear. There is not one group of people, not one class of society who does not need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might think, oh, well, they're wealthy. They've got it all together. What do they need with the gospel? They are utterly and completely lost. And we're going to see a rich man today um, recognize his lostness and come to a place of salvation, which then brings us to the next kind of overview section. And I just want to point out its relationship to chapter 18, verse 25, because in chapter 18, verse 25, um, Jesus is asked the question, how difficult, or he doesn't, he, he presents the statement, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he uses this rather exaggerated statement. He says, in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. At which point everybody asks, well, then who can be saved? Then Jesus says, well, with God, those things are impossible. But with, I'm sorry, with man, it is impossible. But with God, 
all things are possible today. We are going to witness a camel go through the eye of a needle because a rich man receives the salvation of God in joy and in God's glory. So we should make sure that we make that connection. So let me just give you a quick preview of, uh, of our text today. And then I'll, I'll kind of pick it apart. This, this idea to seek and to save the lost is such um, a concise statement of our need, of what God is doing, of, uh, of the gospel. We should note that um, God is a missionary God. I would suggest, no, I would declare that God is the first missionary. We see this in Adam. Adam sins, runs away from God, and God goes and seeks after Adam. Adam, where are you? It's not like he didn't know. Adam, where are you? As we read in Ezekiel, uh, Scott read in Ezekiel this morning about the false shepherds and the bad shepherds who, who, uh, who oppress the flock of God, and how God says, you guys haven't done your job. I'll go get the sheep. I'll go find the shepherd. I'll be, I'll be the shepherd. I will save my people. You have failed. I will save my people. And in Ezekiel 34, 16, we read God saying, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. I'll go seek the lost. So God is a missionary God. He's a seeking God. He is the one who seeks and saves that which is lost. And it is important that we think about this idea of seeking. It is necessary that God seeks because man is fallen. And Romans 3.11 tells us that no one understands and no one seeks God. This is one reason why I guess we are not a seeker-sensitive church. Because nobody seeks God. But God seeks the lost. We present God who seeks and saves the lost. And this idea, so he seeks and he saves. In other words, God's seeking has a goal. It has a terminus. It has an end. It has an objective. And the objective of God's seeking is to bring salvation, to save them. And as we've talked about, we talked about it this morning, we talked about it over and over again. To save implies that there is some peril, some some hazard that we need to be rescued from. God sees us in our peril. He seeks us out and he rescues us from that peril. And ultimately, who does he seek and he saves? He saves the lost. And this is actually a very emphatic word. It's not, it can be used in a lot of different ways. It can be used literally of those who have just wandered and are lost, but it's very emphatic. And it often has to do with that which is ruined, that which is destroyed. Um, and so sin has so corrupted mankind, we are ruined. And we see that in Romans chapter 3, and Charlie brought that out so clearly last week. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 says that we walk in the futility of our mind and that there is none righteous in Romans 3, not even one, that we have all gone astray, we have all wandered, we are all utterly and completely ruined, and that's the person who God seeks and saves. So, just a quick overview. So Jesus seeks and saves the, the lost and we will look at the response of Zacchaeus when he is found by the seeking Savior.
saving Christ. So if you will, join me as we look at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Follow along with me as I read God's word. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, and... When, and when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. So the first thing we see is that Jesus has entered Jericho and is passing through. And I think this is significant. So let me just spend just a couple moments talking about this idea of Jesus entering and passing through Jericho. He is doing just that. He is passing through. But don't miss that. I think it's going to play out for us later as we get into this. He is passing through Jericho. In other words, he is not staying. He indicates he is not staying in Jericho. He's passing through. Remember, he's going to Jerusalem. He's got the cross in front of him, and so he is passing through Jericho. What's also of, of interest, and, and, I, and I get this through, um, uh, through the writings of a man by the name of Kenneth Bailey, who wrote Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, and it, it's an interesting book, as he is from the Middle East, and he tends to look at Scripture uh, in a very interesting way, uh, in a very non-Western way, Way And it's very well worthwhile read to see how how beautiful this passage is going to be. Because Jesus is passing through. Bailey would say that a, that a, a rabbi of such stature, remember there's a crowd following Jesus. He's a famous rabbi. He's a well-known rabbi. People know who he is. There's a crowd following him. And that to enter, for a rabbi to enter Jericho, that the, the prominent people or a prominent person of the town would have offered hospitality. Please spend the night with us. Do not go on to Jerusalem. Spend the night with us. Stay here and we will feed you. You are our guest in our home. It, is not, it, is, it would only be right for you to spend some time here with us. We want to honor you. We want to show you the respect that, that you deserve. You are our guest and Jesus indicates he is just passing through. I'm not staying in Jericho. I'm moving on. And so with that, Jesus signals that he will not spend the night. He is not accepted. They're offered hospitality. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem or enters Jericho and is passing through, we then get introduced to this man by the name of Zacharias. And let me give you a brief biography of Zacharias. It's nothing all that in-depth or deep. It's right here in the text. We don't have to do much with it. First of all, he's a chief tax collector. That is, he's not just a tax collector. He is the chief tax collector. So more likely than not, he is the individual who he probably has numerous tax booths 
uh, around the town and he oversees all of them. To be a tax collector, basically you purchased that right from the Roman government and then you collected um, taxes from the Roman, for the Roman government and I don't know if the tax was, I need to collect 50 bucks from you. Uh, or Rome wanted me to get 50 bucks from you, then I would charge you 50 bucks, but then I also got to make a couple of bucks. So I'm going to charge you 100 bucks. I'm going to give Rome their 50, and I'm going to take my cut. And we can tax just about anything. So uh, we can tax your fish, we can tax your fishing pole, we can tax your boat, we can tax your sail on your boat, we can tax the the rudder on your boat, and we can, you know, just taxes haven't changed that much, have they? I think the Beatles wrote a song about that, right? Sorry to quote the Beatles or reference the Beatles in a sermon on the Word of God. But anyways, taxes haven't changed one bit. And so Zacchaeus um, is a Jewish man who has conspired with Rome to rip off his compatriots, basically is what he's doing. And he's a rich man. He's a chief tax collector. You can, of course, understand why a tax collector such as Zacchaeus would be hated and would be scorned by the people of Jericho because he is a traitor. He has sided with Rome and he's getting rich off of our hard work. His riches have been gained through oppression, through greed, and he is certainly not a man who will be well-loved. He has been, he is, so he is a hated individual. In fact, it's interesting when, when especially in Luke, but when, when the Gospels often talk about sinners, they talk about what tax collectors and sinners. It's like you've got all your sinners over here, murderers, rapists, you know, whatever. And then you got tax. They're their own separate group of sinners. They're so bad. We got to separate. We don't want to include them with the murderers. God forbid we bring down the murderers and associate them with tax collectors. We got tax collectors and sinners. He's a tax collector. And so this is Zacchaeus. The other thing we note about Zacchaeus is that he is small in stature. He's short. And so he was a chief tax collector. He was rich and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he makes some efforts to see who Jesus is. The crowd is large and he's a small man. You also have to remember, being being who he was, he had no friends. So Jesus is coming through town. There is... um, you know, we saw there was quite a crowd following him. Just go back up and read about uh, Jesus' healing of the blind man. There had been a crowd following Jesus. Um, they were rejoicing because on the outskirts of, of Jericho, he heals the blind man. People are rejoicing, celebrating this great miracle. Jesus is coming through um, Jericho, and there is now a crowd lining the streets. Um, and Zacchaeus wants to see him, but he cannot appeal to the crowd um, to do him a favor. Listen, can you just move aside? Listen, you know I'm short. Can you just let me scoot through here? Of course not. He cannot appeal to his place in society. Listen, I'm a prominent business person. Let me in. Oh, no. 
He knows where he stands. Not only that, but this would be very dangerous. Remember, he's a conspirator, or seen as a conspirator with the Roman government. And there are many people who do not like him and would love to see him dead. And to enter into a crowd is not just... He will not just be shunned. He will, he will be risking his life. You enter into a crowd like that, and out comes a knife into this short, rich man, and nobody even knows what's happened until the crowd moves along, and while everybody's moved, the body's left there. He knows good and well that he does not enter into a crowd like this. And so, this is Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, a man who was rich and gained his riches by oppression and greed. He wants to see who Jesus is, But that opportunity is, um, is not provided him. And so, wanting to see Jesus, he goes on ahead, runs, and climbs up a tree to see Jesus. So something is compelling Zacchaeus to see Jesus. The text doesn't really tell us what that compelling, what is compelling him to see Jesus. Uh, perhaps there's a natural curiosity. I'll just throw a few ideas out there. Just a natural curiosity. After all, there's a crowd coming. What's going on? Um, perhaps there's some hope. Perhaps he's heard of Jesus um, and knows the name and maybe even has heard that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But I would propose to you this fact, that it is the Holy Spirit supernaturally moving him to a place where Jesus is going to find him. And so he runs on ahead and he climbs up a tree. You should note how undignified this is. First of all, we often talk about, especially when we're dealing with the parable of the prodigal son, how the father ran out to, to greet the son and how undignified it was for a man in Jewish culture to run. And so men didn't run. Because to do so, you know, you had like, you know, like a toga, right? Big tunic, yeah. So to do that, you had to hike it up. Right? You kind of wrapped it up under your legs. And so, you know, we wear shorts today and that's not a big deal. But back in those days, you know, that was basically displaying your nakedness. And so to run, you had to hike up your skirt, if you will, and tie it up under your legs and go run. So men did not run. This man ran and then he climbs a tree. Again, utterly and completely undignified. This guy is a rich man running and climbing a tree. He, this is completely out of character of a man of Zacchaeus' profession, of the culture, and I believe completely compelled by the Holy Spirit. This is an attempt, I believe. He is not looking to be found, by the way. He is climbing a tree. There will be a lot of leaves. He is, he is climbing a tree. His goal is not to be found. His goal is just to see what is going on. And so, here we have Jesus passing through town. Zacchaeus wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. I believe the Spirit of God is moving him. And he, he acts in uncouth and undignified ways to get a glimpse of who this Jesus is. We should probably note also this is probably on the outskirts of town. 
Um, again, the Mishnah tells us that you would, uh, which is just a Jewish commentary um, of the oral tradition. It's just the, uh, of the Jewish oral tradition that sycamore trees would have been planted outside of the city. And the reason being, well, there's a lot of reasons why, but more likely than not, they were planted outside of the city. Jesus passed through the city. And there is this tax collector sitting up in a leafy tree trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And here Jesus, the seeker, finds a lost man who is up a tree on the outskirts of Jericho. I don't know. There's almost some humor in that, isn't there? Jesus is passing through town and he stops and he finds this lost man. Tunic hiked up, sitting in a tree. Probably hasn't climbed a tree since he was a kid trying to see Jesus. I just, I just think to myself, where and how God moves us to find us. Where were you when Christ found you? Uh, right? I mean, where were you? You may have been in just some completely crazy place. I don't know, like up a tree. I mean, I, I, I hear your testimonies and I hear you share um, how, how you came to Christ. And we have people, man, you were out of we have people, Man, I was in a crack house. I was in a gutter. I was in a posh um, townhouse. I was here. I was there. I went to a play. You have to understand. And I hated high school. And you've heard me say this. I, I hated high school. I never went to a single high school event. I did not go to a football game, a basketball game. I never went to a dance. I never did anything on the high school campus other than go to class. I went to class because I just wasn't, didn't want to fail. So I went to school, and at lunchtime, I left campus. And at the end of lunch, I came back to campus, and at 3 o'clock, I left. And I came back the next day. Well, one day I, slept, I, I was there until 3.30 because I fell asleep in my last class and I didn't wake up until 3.30. But that's another illustration for another day. But other than that, I did nothing on a high school campus. And one day, I felt compelled to go to a play on the high school campus. This is as crazy as a guy... This is, tax collector climbing a tree. And I don't know why, it was a Friday night. There was a party in the desert. My friends were coming over. And I told them, you guys go on. I'm going to a play on the high school campus. Are you kidding me? This is the Holy Spirit of God. And there I heard the gospel. I'd heard it before. Other people told me the gospel. I'd scoffed at it. I'd laughed at it. I told the people they were nuts. I walked away. I scorned them. But this night, God moved me to go to a play on the high school. I didn't even like arts. I could see me going to a football game maybe. But a play? Are you joking me? And so here I am. These words are coming out of my mouth to my friends. No, I'm not going to go to the party. I'm going to go to the play at the high school. Who is saying these things? And off I go. I find myself 
at a high school play and I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and I came home and I repented of myself. Where did Christ find you? It was the Holy Spirit who moved you to a place where you intersected with the gospel and you got saved. And for this, for Zacchaeus' situation, the Holy Spirit moved him to run down to the edge of the town and climb a tree. As odd and crazy as that is. But God probably found you in some sort of crazy place as well. Or maybe it wasn't even crazy, but God moved you to a place where the gospel intersected with your life and you said, that's the truth and I am going to follow Christ. Something happened and God placed you. A friend of ours was sharing how he became a Christian last week and he was saying, so he, he wasn't a believer, and, but he thought um, he would go to church because it would earn points with this girl, with the family of this girl he was interested in. It's like, well, man, you know, if I can win the parents, then you know, maybe I can win the girl or at least get the parents on, on my side. So he goes to church with them, heard the gospel and starts walking out, gets to the door, gets out to the steps near the parking lot, turns around and tells the, the girl's mom, I need to go back. I need to call upon the name of the Lord. She says, yeah, that's what you need to do completely out of character of this guy. I don't know that he'd been in church. So, not very much, but completely out of character. And God moved him to a place where the gospel intersected with his life. And before he could leave, he was compelled to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. This is what God does. This is what he does to Zacchaeus. Moves him to climb a tree on the outskirts of town. And Jesus... Looks up into the tree and says, Zacchaeus, today I must stay at your house. People ask, how does he know Zacchaeus' name? Well, it could be a number of different ways, but this is very reminiscent of Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel. Nathaniel he, he says, I know who you are, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? I'll tell you this, Christ knows his own. The shepherd knows his sheep. And he's on the outskirts of town and he sees a sheep sitting in a tree. He knows his name. Zacchaeus, come down. Hurry and come down. Today I must stay at your house. And I want you to note the importance of this idea of I must stay at your house. Jesus has indicated that he is passing through town. But the the reality is he had already made plans. Before he got to before he even got to Jericho, he knew exactly where he was staying. When people offer him an invitation, why don't you come stay at our house? Jesus indicates he's passing through. In his heart, in his mind, I'm staying at Zacchaeus' house. That's where I must stay. And I want to note this idea of this, uh, uh, the focus of this, I must stay at your house. This is what we would call a divine imperative. In other words, this has to happen. I must stay at your house. Let me give you a couple of other musts in the Bible. Matthew, I gave you a whole list in your sermon notes, but let's just, I'll I'll read a couple. Matthew chapter 24, verse 6. Here's a must. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Matthew chapter 26, verse 54. Uh, Another must, another divine imperative. 
But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Certain things have to happen. God, in His eternal plan, has designed certain things to happen. He is, the Scriptures must be fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled. And we see this throughout the Scriptures. In John chapter 3, 14, Jesus says, I must go through Samaria. I must go. It is the divine imperative. It is the plan of God that I go through Samaria. It is the plan of God that these events will take place. And it is the divine plan that I will spend the night at your house, Zacchaeus. Because salvation is coming to you today. From This is now the eternal plan of God. The divine plan is being worked out. And today, God's plan to save Zacchaeus is coming to fruition. This is why I've come. I've come to seek and to save the lost. And today, I must be in your house. Because today is the day of salvation planned by God for you. I'm not passing through. I must stay at your house. This is very interesting because when, just, when Jesus says that I must stay at your house, this, first of all, it's kind of interesting because um, nobody invites themselves over to another person's house, right? You just don't do it. Unless like, you're like really close friends or family, you know. You might tell family, hey, I'm coming over for dinner tonight. Oh, you are? But we don't do that to strangers or even people we're acquainted with. We don't say, hey, I'm... I'm coming over to the house and you're feeding me tonight. Jesus is like, I'm staying at your house tonight, Zacchaeus. But when he says that, what's he doing? He's taking this guy who's a sinner and saying, I receive you. I accept you. To stay in somebody's house would be an acknowledgement of your... There would be an acknowledgement of acceptance. That, yeah, I'm willing to spend the night at your house. I accept you. And what does Zacchaeus do? He hurries and comes down and says, come over to my house. So Jesus has said, Zacchaeus, I accept you. And Zacchaeus hurries and comes down and reciprocates, basically saying, and Jesus, I accept you. This is an amazing thing. So he has this joyful acceptance. Jesus calls him, and Zacchaeus joyfully responds to him. Jesus has received Zacchaeus, and now Zacchaeus receives Jesus. Luke now interjects this little phrase that, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the, be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now the crowd murmurs, the crowd grumbles, and I want you to note, who are they grumbling at? They are grumbling at Jesus for being the friend of sinners. First of all, of all the people to lodge with, Jesus chooses this one. Didn't we just offer him a place to stay when he came into town with some dignitary, with some bigwit, with somebody who's prominent, at least somebody who's not a sinner, and he comes into town and he stays with Zacchaeus, the chief sinner of this town? Are you kidding me? And they grumble at Jesus for staying at the house of sinners. But here's the thing I want you to take note of. Jesus now becomes the recipient of their scorn. I think this is important because at first Zacchaeus is the man who is scorned. And now Jesus steps in between Zacchaeus and the crowd and they scorn him. He bears their scorn. He bears their reproach. He bears their mocking. He bears their hatred. Oh, if this is him pointing forward to Calvary because he's about to go to Jerusalem where he is going to bear our shame, our scorn. All of that is deflected away from Zacchaeus and now is the brunt of it is faced totally upon Christ our Lord. He bears our scorn. He bears our grief. 
He bore God's wrath. The wrath of God directed towards you was borne by Christ of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He stepped in between you and the peril that you were facing and he bore it himself. And so Zacchaeus is now no longer the object of scorn. Jesus is the object of scorn. I think that's such an important thing to not miss. So Zacchaeus runs to the edge of town, climbs a tree. Jesus says, today I'm coming into your house. Zacchaeus joyfully receives the word of the Lord. And then the, and the, the crowd murmurs. And the next thing we see um, is that <clears throat> Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. So now we see this fruit of repentance. Um, we don't hear the conversation. We don't see the conversation of Jesus um, sharing the gospel or saying, you know, um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, you know, the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus and all of it. We don't see any of that conversation. We don't see him present the Romans road. The Romans road, Paul hadn't written it yet, but I'm pretty sure Jesus knew it. Um, and so we don't see that conversation. What do we see? We see the fruit of repentance. We see what happens when a heart is changed. And he called, first of all, he calls Jesus Lord. Lord. I'm going to give all of, I'm going to give, I'm going to give my possessions to the, to the poor. I'm going to give to the poor. Think about the heart change. This man has gone from being a taker to a giver. He's gone from being an oppressor to a philanthropist. He's gone from a, a greedy man to a giving man. Just a few moments earlier, this man was a greedy tax collector who did not mind stepping on the backs of widows and the poor to get every last dime he could out of them. And now he is saying, Lord, I'll give it away. Something happened. Something happened from the time being in a tree to the time now. Something has changed his heart. This is the fruit of repentance. And I want you to, to remind you um, that... <clears throat> God saves us by grace through faith for good works. Ephesians chapter three, or chapter 2, verse 10. We are saved by grace through faith for what purpose? For good works. This is exactly what's going on in Zacchaeus' life. He is now doing and acting um, in a God-like way. And we have to contrast this with the rich young ruler. The, the rich young ru ruler, Jesus said, give away all your stuff. And he couldn't do it. And he walked away unredeemed. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, is a rich man who's, who hears the word of the Lord, repents of his sin, and now his heart is changed. Today, as we mentioned earlier today, a camel has passed through the eye of a needle. That which is utterly and completely impossible has happened because with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Nobody can change Zacchaeus' heart. Christ does. See, righteousness results in transformation. When a person comes to know Christ, it results in a transformation. Let me give you a great example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through, through 11, this is a great passage of text. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Listen, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty plain statement. And then he says this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Righteousness results in transformation. This is the way, way you were, but you are not that way anymore because you have been regenerated. You've been washed by the water of the words. Zacchaeus was a greedy, hoarding, oppressive man who now says, Lord, I'll give away what I got. Fruits of repentance. But wait, there's more. Then he goes on and says, I'll restore fourfold. Um, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Where did he get that idea? He got it out of God's law. There are a lot of Old Testament passages that regard how one is to um, go about um, restitution. And I put a couple of passages in there. Um, Numbers chapter 5 Verse 6, talk about how um, somebody needs to pay back 20, uh, it's basically a 20% charge. Um, in Exodus chapter 22, one would pay back double. Um, but here, in Exodus chapter 22, verses, verse 1, it talks about the person who purposely and maliciously steals from another person, and his charge is 25%. What's interesting here isn't I mean, you can go back and read all the, the legal stuff. That's all very interesting. But here's what Zacchaeus does. He doesn't try to cheap out. He doesn't say, well, I can get by with 20%. He's saying, nope, give me the max. Give me the max. I'll pay back the max. What's the maximum I owe? That's what I will do. And so, on the one hand, he has a change of heart. But notice what else he's doing. He's keeping God's law. But he's keeping his law out of joy. In other words, I want to do what God has called me to do. My heart has changed. No longer do I see God's law as something that is burdensome or horrible or terrible or, oh gosh, I have to do it. Okay, I guess I'll do it if I have to. No! Here is God's word. Here's what God has called me to do. I will joyfully submit myself to the word of God and do everything that God has called me to do. This is a man who has changed. This is a man who has been altered. This is a man who Jesus said salvation has come to your house. This is a man who's passed through the eye of your needle. I hear people all the time, friends saying, well, you know, if I became a Christian, then I'd have to do this, and I'd have to give this up, I'd have to give that up, I wouldn't be able to do this. They're probably right. What they fail to factor is that when your heart changes, You become a person who says, not only do I hear what God wants me to do, I want to do what God wants me to do. Sometimes not perfectly. Sometimes we even rebel. But there's a a change in our heart. Now I read God's word and I say, that's what I want to do. Lord, help me to do it. Help me to do what you've called me to do. Zacchaeus has had a change of heart. Zacchaeus now willfully and joyfully wants to do what God has called him to do. And so, just a brief summary of that, a heart change results in a love for God's law. And Jesus says this, today salvation has come to this house. I suppose that can mean the fact that Jesus is in the house. 
Salvation has come. Jesus is salvation. He's in the house. But the reason he gives is that this, for this man is a son of Abraham, which is interesting because Zacchaeus had always been a Jew. He had always been of the lineage or the bloodline of Abraham. But Paul tells us, and what's being, um, I think, referenced here, what Paul draws from, is that a Jew is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And Paul tells us that not all of Israel is Israel. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, 7, Paul tells us that you are a son of Abraham by having the faith of Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. Here, Zacchaeus believes God. Today, he is a son of Abraham because he has the faith of Abraham. And then he goes. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is why Jesus came. He is the good shepherd. Did you notice all the shepherd scriptures we were reading today? Jesus has come. The lost sheep has been brought back by the good shepherd. Jesus is passing through Jericho. Some guy runs up a tree. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, today you're going to, uh, I'm going to have dinner at your house. He receives him joyfully. His heart is changed. Jesus has sought the lost and the lost is saved. And this is what he came to do. And I would just open this up to, to anybody here today. I know most of you, but if you are not a follower of Christ, today's the day of salvation. Today salvation has come to your ears and perhaps this is that intersection of the gospel. I just said that sometimes God places us in places that we never knew we would be and we are and the gospel intersects with our lives and that's the day that salvation comes. So if today is the day if God is pressing upon your heart, leaning upon your heart, if you're convicted, it's like, man, <clears throat> I need a savior. I have sinned against the holy God. All of my right good deeds, I've done some good things, but ultimately I have sinned against God. How can I be made right with a good and holy God? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Do not turn, turn back because the gospel is intersecting with your life. And I would compel, I would plead with you to speak with myself, to speak with Simone after the service. Come up while the, our final music is, is going on. And we would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. Because, and you're going, well, I don't know if I can. I can tell you this, Christ will change your heart and you will love to do what God has called you to do. He will enable you. He will not start you off on a path and then say, oh, well, too bad you can't do it. He will help you do the very thing that you want to do. So with that, this is the work of the Good Shepherd. So I'll just conclude with, with this. Christ is calling you today, first of all, be like Zacchaeus and respond with haste. Don't wait. Respond with haste. Second thing, respond with joy. This is a good day. This is the day where Jesus said, insert your name. Today, I'm accepting you. Today, I'm receiving you. Respond with joy. The Lord of the universe has called your name. You are my sheep. And I'm calling you back to the fold. This is a day of rejoicing. And finally, we will respond with repentance, not only in word, but in deed. And we will do the things that God has called us to do. Let's spend a few moments in just quiet reflection of this text and see if the Lord would speak to us in any way and then we will stand and sing our final song.